The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, my name is Adam Doan. I'm a board-certified neurophysiologist from just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm the co-chair of the NAS section on intraoperative neuromonitoring. My guest today on today's podcast is Dr. Todd Albert, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief Emeritus at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Well Cornell Medical College. He's also the past president of the Scoliosis Research Society and the Cervical Spine Research Society, and is a primary focus on treating disorders of the cervical spine, which makes him the perfect guest for today's podcast, where we will be discussing the use of neuromonitoring during cervical spine surgery. Dr. Albert, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Adam. Great to see you. Likewise. So how long have you been using neuromonitoring during cervical surgeries? Wow. Um, I think I've been doing it for over 20 years. I started in the early 90s, something like 1995, four or five, and have been doing it ever since. Gosh, that, that, that was almost pre-motors at that point, right? I was in, exactly. I started at a time when uh, motors, your former boss, Dan Schwartz, was the first person who introduced me uh, to using motors, but we did that in the mid nineties. We'd be prior to that. If we wanted motor response, we were trying to slip electrodes up along the spinal cord. It was not, not so fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that predates me by a, a few years in the profession. So luckily I didn't have to do that either. Um, so some surgeons monitor routinely while others reserve monitoring only for the more complex cases. For your patients, how do you decide which cervical surgeries are going to receive monitoring? You know, I've been, I don't, I don't uh, really discriminate. I do monitoring for in almost all of my surgeries. I, there's almost not a surgery in cervical spine that I don't monitor. And the reason is that not too long into my career, I realized that in certain patients, even if they had only radiculopathy um, with positioning, we saw some uh, brachial nerve issue. I mean, uh, brachial plexus issues um, with uh, certain uh, other diseases, diabetes, vascular disease, the positioning, we saw changes in motors and you can make the argument, oh, it wasn't gonna turn into something clinical. I never would wanna take that chance. And so for me, for cervical surgery, it's helpful for monitoring, taping, um, and positioning. There are cases I won't necessarily get pre-positional motors, but I will do monitoring for essentially every case. Gotcha. Yeah, so I think that, that leads into the next question pretty, pretty nicely. So I, I read a, a recent survey from the Cervical Spine Research Society where they sur surveilled their members on why they use monitoring for non-deformity cervical, cervical surgery. And results identified medical legal protection as one of the main drivers of use. So what, what are your main drivers? Does it include medical legal? Is it, is it just about the, the, um, the feedback during? Like, what are your rationale? It's, it's majority of it is feedback. And we always get into this question. And I think this is a real, question relative to monitoring, which I become comfortable with, is for me, it's always been, if 
So you can make the argument, well, it might be an electrical, it may be oversensitive, and you're seeing something that won't result in a clinical problem. So why bother? Why add the expense? And my answer would always be, what's the expense of one paralysis? It's almost like the MasterCard. You can't put a price on that, and especially the human price for that person. So um, for me, it is I use it really medical legally, I could make an argument to you that it's the opposite. You're documenting something going wrong, potentially medical legally, if you're using it. Um, and in the absence, no one's proven it's absolute standard of care. So that's not a reason I would do it. I'm just thinking about the patient. If that patient was my family member, my mom, my dad, my kid, um, the cost of one paralysis is higher than the cost of all the monitoring in the world. And if I can prevent that with, like I said before, positioning, EMG, free run EMG alerts that I'm you know, manipulating that I should back off and give the cord a rest, things like that, a concussive thing that the motors go out, the sensories are okay, but they come back, I can proceed. There's lots of little algorithmic things that make me comfortable having monitoring with good monitoring people doing it in an operation. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the keys is having that a good team, but just as importantly, the good team has good communication and a good relationship built on, on trust by by doing it. So I think that that's always going to be a main component of it is just establishing that sort of familiarity with the people you're working with. Gotcha. So what what sort of um, modalities do you typically order on your cervical procedures? So we use uh, motor, motor evoke potentials, somatosensory evoke potentials, and free run EMG. And the free run EMG, and then, um, and the, you know, the free run EMG for me, like I said, is, you know, it, it, it sensitizes me. When they say, you're getting activity on the right, you're getting activity on the left. Like if I'm in the frame and, and I expect activity, I got right. it. Yep. But if I'm doing something where I don't really expect activity and I'm getting activity, it, it makes me pause and say why. And I just think it's an added layer of, so it, even that's useful to me. And do you uh, use the same modalities regardless of diagnosis? So your radicular patients less complex versus your myelopathic patients or your traumas, is it, is it pretty much the same regardless? Yeah, pre pretty much the same, only because I must say our setup is great and we have people who work in-house that do our monitor neurologist neurology team and they're very good and it doesn't take too long. It doesn't slow me down, so to speak, or inconvenience me. So the same modalities on every case. Gotcha. And you, you mentioned motors before and how you sort of started before and then, you know, you adapted to using them. And, you know, as far as that goes, like, what is your approach? Because I, I know sometimes, um, you know, if it was up to the neuromonitoring team, we'd probably do more. And sometimes when it's up to the surgeon, we do less. Like, how do you how do you find like the right the right stages of which to run that during the procedure without too much disruption? I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked it. Um, I agree with you that if it was up to the, mo the monitoring people, they would have the patient seizing on the table. <laughs> they would check it. But for example, it sometimes if it's, if it's an um, osteopenic person where I have an intervertebral distractor in, 
and they require a high voltage to get their monitoring, I'm a little more judicious in the use of the motor to get their motor because they can buck the patient and I've had retractors knock out, you know, distractors knock out or violate the bone. So I'm a little careful, but I have kind of an algorithm where we'll do motoring motors after positioning and taping, obviously, then we start. Then um, once I put in a distraction on a disc space motor, finish the discectomy, put a graft in motor, do the next disc space distract motor, graft in or cage in motor, and then after the plate goes on, if that's for an anterior. For posterior, we'll do it like if we're doing a laminoplasty or a laminectomy. After I, each stage of the procedure, I kind of want to document the patient's okay. So say I'm doing a partial or full laminectomy at C3. I do the exposure motor. I do a partial laminectomy at C3 motor. I do a partial laminectomy at C7 motor. I do my first side of the laminoplasty, which is the laminectomy side through both cortices, say four, five, and six as a more standard like levels we might do. And I, and I will do a motor. Maybe along the way, if the patient jumped a little or something, I might do a motor, any change, obviously. And then we, as we're opening the laminoplasty doors and fixing each level, we'll do a motor. So it, it, I kind of break it down into the stages of the operation and checking partially to make sure I haven't done anything that's hurt that patient. But the other reason is to document the patient's okay along the way. And we can then know if something's not right along each stage. Yep. Yeah. Monitoring doesn't always have the best positive predictive value, but it's got a phenomenal negative predictive value. So if you're good at that stage, you, you know, you're good and you can move on. So one of the criticisms that I've heard about monitoring cervical procedures is that by the time there's an alert that's potentially indicative of an injury, it's too late to actually do anything about it. Do you agree with this or how do you approach potential interventions in the face of data changes? Yeah, I don't really agree with it because that, that statement because um, if there's an alert, there's two things. Either you did something and you suspect there may be an alert so you can start immediately to do things to reverse that alert. That's one, raise the blood pressure. I, I run very high maps while I'm doing these cases anyway, but raise the blood pressure more, potentially give steroids, you know, stop and wait and see if it's a concussive injury. A lot of times it'll come back. You've now documented you're okay. If you're shocked that you have an alert, like that doesn't make sense. Well, then your monitoring team can check, make sure, you know, the, the machine's plugged in, whatever, you know, the, whatever you do to check a, the electricity, so to speak. And if it's not that, you'll do some changes to see if the motors are down, if they come back, if it was real for some reason. And like the first thing when they say motors are down, I say, what's the blood pressure? I have an algorithm in my head. What's the yep. blood pressure? Oh, the blood pressure is low. Please raise the blood pressure. That in and of itself makes monitoring worthwhile to me. Somebody's they shouldn't be sleeping at the wheel, but if they are, or they're, you know, something's drifted off, it allows you another reason to look. So yeah, I don't, yeah, I think it's 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 useful that way. Great. Um 
So spinal cord injuries in cervical surgery are, are rare, but other issues like a, a root palsy, peripheral issues, you mentioned plexopathies before are, are more common. Uh, I think most people are, most, you know, groups, hospitals out there are really good at, you know, catching spinal cord issues. But what about the, these other like, issues? Have you had success with neuromonitoring in this capacity to catch these? Yeah, no, not as much as we would like. We're constantly searching for a better way to know. Um, we've not, especially the best example in cervical surgery are C5 issues with post right. We wrote a paper a long time ago, a dot, one of your old colleagues, I think, it, it, in Philadelphia, Dr. Hank Khan, who's now an anesthesiologist, is, wrote this paper uh, with, with the group in Philadelphia. And it really showing that it was very hard, very hard to predict the C5 palsies, there was no difference in any of the monitoring variables we looked at and, you know, those who didn't have C5 palsy. So not that much has changed since then. And we don't have really good way other than I will say, if you're getting a lot of noise from C5, you know, like a lot of EMG activity, that's sometimes predictive. The other thing I get very, um, kind of nervous and tuned up about is if I'm doing a case and I know I'm going to be working at C, the C4-5 level and that level is not only the worst level, but it has signal change in the cord on MRI before we start, you know, T2 signal change, not, yeah. uh, not monitoring signal change. Those patients I've anecdotally found to have a higher risk of a C5 palsy. We also did a paper where we looked at width of decompression. And that can, we saw a trend, a very strong trend. It was almost, it was really on the verge of being statistically significant that wider than 18 millimeter decompressions were so. I'll really do different monitoring checks in those patients, but I haven't yet, I can't tell the audience or you that there's a predictive monitoring unless you know one that I don't know. There's not a predictive monitoring. Yeah, I mean, for delayed palsies, certainly not. There's a, a few good papers that look at that and came up with the same conclusions that Dr. Fan and team came up with back in the day. But um, what about like uh, motor voc potential from the deltoid for the ones that, you know, occur in the moment? Like, you know, they wake up essentially with that, that palsy. Have you had success with motors for that capacity? I will tell you this. Two, there are two nerves. When the motors go down and they say specifically you're de decreased, you know, maybe not out, but decreased significantly, C5 or the C8 complex, pretty predictive that that patient's going to be weak afterwards. Um, I have seen that fairly consistently. So for that acute palsy where you may have hurt that nerve inadvertently, intraoperatively, I think that it's relatively predictive in molars. And there was a, an MRI study on awake patients that came out not too long ago, and they showed that on the awake patients, the shoulder traction to get the shoulders out of the way for imaging um, actually, you know, anatomically would stress the drive root due to its lack of, you know, added slack. So if you had, you know, that, that's one potential intervention, uh, especially if that's something you pick up, you know, before you get into the meat of the surgery. But what about like um, a foraminotomy? That's something I've seen surgeons do where they'll, they'll go in and see if they do a foraminotomy if that gets the motor back. Yeah, you know, it's been looked at over and over again. And the conclusion basically has been that it hasn't made a big difference doing a foraminotomy prophylactically. Um, on C5, 
if it's really tight and you do a foraminotomy, there is some argument to be made that it may be helpful. But the act of doing the foraminotomy, it's such a sensitive nerve. The act of doing it could we could make it more vulnerable to a C5. Right. All right, so we are living in the era of evidence-based medicine, and currently there's not that much literature on outcomes or the cost-benefit of using monitoring on cervical surgeries. So, and what does exist, I guess, is sometimes often conflicting. So how do you view monitoring in this regard? It's kind of what I said at the beginning, and people would probably argue with my thought process on it, but the cost of one severe palsy, one you know, significant neurologic deficit in a patient who went into surgery without it is I think almost immeasurable. There are healthcare economists that could measure it. Um, but I think if you measured it, you would have to say, gosh, it's worth monitoring in how many thousand patients to prevent one. Opportunity cost. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so wrapping up, do you have any clinical pearls you'd like to share with the audience? You've been monitoring cervical procedures for a, a long time. What, what have you learned that you'd like to share? Well, you, something you said actually at the beginning of the interview is critically important is the um, communication with, sur it's all around surgeon and the monitoring team, monitoring team anesthesia, and all three people being on the same page, absolutely critical. The, the anesthetic protocols used can, as you know better than anybody, can absolutely screw up your monitoring and they have to be, everybody has to agree on the, on the team of what makes the most sensitive readings and what not to use, what to use. So communication, number one. Number two, um, try to develop a stepwise algorithm as I somewhat described earlier and when you're gonna do the monitoring and hit what stages. And the other stage that's super important is at the beginning, you, met, you alluded to it also, once you tape the shoulders, if you tape the shoulders, check those SSEPs distally, make sure there's no change, do a motor, no change in C5, all that stuff, really important. Um, and, and finally, really uh, understand what interventions can alter the monitoring and what interventions can reverse monitoring changes, blood pressure being, uh, blood pressure uh, elevation being the single best in my mind. Yep, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. When you, when you play baseball, you know what to do before the ball hits you on every single play. So on every single stage of monitoring changes, what could, what could be causing it? What do you do about it? Yeah. So, Dr. Albert, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today. It's been great. It's great to see you again. Likewise. Thank you.